Well, we have been looking at the life of Jesus from the book of Luke. And we've seen how the first eight chapters have been all about who is Jesus. But then in the middle of chapter 9, when Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, right answer. That is it. And then he shifts to a new focus where he begins to clarify, if this is who I am, the sent one, the Messiah, the promised one, the one you've been waiting for that God said would come into the world to solve our biggest problem, if this is who I am, and it is, then this is how my disciples will live when they really believe in who I am. You realize we got people claiming to be followers of Jesus that don't look or live anything like he said they would. That's a problem. That should concern you. They don't look or live any. They don't have the priorities he had. They don't have the heart he said they had. They don't have the tone he said they'd have. And they don't seem to be living for the kingdom he said they were a part of. And so in chapter 10, you're going to get to hear again. Jesus unpack and spell out for us what a disciple of Jesus really looks like. And you can consider, am I one? Am, I don't want you to think, oh, I was baptized. I don't want you to think I made a decision. I prayed a prayer. I want you to hear Jesus as we go through Luke and consider, not perfectly, but does my life look like he said disciples would look And am I living for what he said disciples would live for? Luke chapter 10. Go there in your Bible. I hope you have a Bible with you or an app where you can see it. Because God's word is powerful and life-changing. Luke chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom Of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you 
hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Then the 72 returned. So he sent them out and he's skipping. And Luke is not telling us how did it go. He doesn't give us any details. But we've got a debriefing moment now with Jesus. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. What does Jesus want us to know? about what it looks like to be one of his disciples. Well, here's the first thing I want you to get. Number one, Jesus calls ordinary Christians to be a part of his extraordinary kingdom. Look what I'm talking about in verse one. And after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town. Oh, the word I want you to think about, the word I want you, if you don't mind marking in your Bible, to mark is others. Others. 72 others. 72 others. And so it raises the question, does it not? Others. Other than who? To whom is this group being added? Who's the original group? 72 others who already was a part of this. Well, if you jump back to chapter 9, you'll see what he's doing. Because in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, we got the exact same wording where it says he called the 12 together, the apostles, those specially trained, those who had spent the most time with him, those that sat at his feet. He called the 12 together, apostles, and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases and sent them out. Guess what? Jesus never intended to reach this world through his 12 disciples alone. He's never, ever been focused on a specialized, set-aside, unusually gifted group that he hopes will get it all done. No. He's raising up, say the word, others, say it louder. If you're a Christian, raise your hand. Others. He's not about you. He's not about me. Others. Others from all over the world to live on mission for what matters most. And that's what the number 72. Some translations have the number 70, 72. Either way, this is significant. This is what the number is about. It's not a random number. And the Jews would have picked up on it immediately. Because the Old Testament they were reading in that day was written in Latin. It was called the Septuagint. And in that version in Genesis chapter 10, they had a place they called the Table of the Nations that listed 70 
to nations. And so Jesus is saying, I intend to use, look at me, people from every nation to reach people from every nation. And that's what he's been doing for centuries now. Using not just clergy, not specially trained, not set aside, not specially gifted. People from every nation to reach people from every nation. If we only had chapter 9 and not 10, we could say, that's right, look, the 12. That's right, look at that. The 12, the 12. Jesus uses the professional, the clergy, the seminary trained to go and spread the good news because that's their job. We'll pay them and we'll pray for them. But it's not our job. We pay and pray. That's it. Hope it goes well. We'll pray for you. Not what Jesus is teaching. Chapter 10 blows that all up. Because these 72 others are ordinary Christians living it out. Because every man or woman who ever comes to faith in Christ should be on mission for what matters most. On mission for what matters most. Oh, listen to me. You may work at Limited Motors or some other dealership, but if you're a believer, you're on mission, on mission, on mission. You might be in the Beachwood or Boone County school system, but you're on mission. You could be a home manager or mother at home raising young children, but you're on mission in that neighborhood, at that play group, in that mom's group, in that grocery store, on mission. You might work at Fidelity or P&G, but you're on mission. You could be at Amazon or the airport, but you're on mission. You might be in the federal court system or in law enforcement, but you're on mission. You might be a sculptor or a graphic designer, but you're on mission. You might be a chef, a musician, a server, a hairstylist. But if you are a Christian, you're on mission for the glory of God and the good of this lost and dying world. So live for what matters most. Talk about what matters most. His kingdom and his good news of salvation. You realize we've got Christians. It breaks my heart. We've got Christians speaking up more than ever before. But as I listen, it doesn't sound like they're speaking up about the right things. Jesus said in Matthew 15, out of the abundance of the... And you say, well, you can't see my heart. You can't see my heart. You're right. But I hear your mouth. And it's running a lot. It is running like diarrhea. Oh, my goodness. And the more your mouth runs, the more you show your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth... What? Let me ask you, let me ask you, what are you talking about most? What are you talking about most? What are you talking about most? He's called us to be on mission for what matters most. To be talking about what matters most. And it's actually a great time to be That remnant that brings it back to what matters most in the midst of chaos and darkness and fear. We're the ones that are supposed to be looking and sounding different, talking about something different, not the same thing. In the book of Acts, when Christians, that early church, they were so, these early believers that had no PowerPoint, no color brochures, no buildings, 
They were living so on mission for what matters most that one city cried out in Acts 17. These men who have turned the world upside down have now come here. Go to the passage, not now, but you check it out. They weren't talking about the apostles. They were talking about ordinary Christians living it out. Ordinary Christians turned the world upside down because they were so on mission. Listen to me. Jesus never calls you into his family without sending you back into this dark world. It's both. He calls you in so that he can send you out in a new way with a new heart and a new focus and a new tone and new priorities and new treasures that make you look different, that make you sound different, distinct, peculiar. He said in 1 Peter, you'd be peculiar people. Peculiar means it's different than everything else that's going on. He calls you in not to huddle up and say, oh my goodness, how can we stay away from darkness? How can we stay away from evil people? How can we avoid all this? You won't find that in the Bible. He calls you in so that he can send you out in a new way with a new heart and a new focus all about a new, bigger, greater kingdom. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Please don't quit your marketplace job. Just go into it on mission. And also don't hear me saying, be the worst worker there because you're so lazy. All you're trying to do is share the gospel, but you're not good at what you do. Don't do that either. Be the best graphic designer and be the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ. And look for opportunities around the water cooler or wherever to run the flag up the flagpole and mention Jesus. To be different. Be good at what you do. But think, I'm on mission. I'm on mission. God has me here for such a time as this. In this place. On mission. So let me press this some more with one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And tell my wife, I don't say that about every verse. She's like, you say that about every verse. No, I don't. One of my favorite verses, Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Oh, let's talk about this for a minute. Lots of confusion in our world because the human heart is wired for works. Tell me what to do and I'll do it so that God will save me. Tell me what to do. Give me a list and I'll try to do it well enough that he'll say, great, you're saved. The Bible does not teach you're saved by doing works, right? We say it all the time. You're saved by grace through faith. In Christ, plus, great. And that's what the previous two verses actually teach. Some of you might know it. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But too many Christians don't know what the next verse says. As soon as he says, you're not saved by works, he says, let me show you the place of works. There is a place for we, once he saves you, are his workmen. He doesn't just want to save you. He wants to use you. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now stay with me which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Now, does that excite you like it excites me? God just did not have in mind previously saving you. He actually has certain good works in mind for you 
to do that he had thought about beforehand. Beforehand. Oh, because here's what's going on, you guys. That word workmanship in the Greek, that word workmanship in the Greek is a word that means work of art. A work of art. Isn't that beautiful? A work of art. It's the Greek word poema. Guess what English word we get from that? Poem. He's saying every believer is a work of art. Something I'm crafting intentionally, customized, unique, one of a kind. And I'm going to use you to put you on display as a work of art in a, in a specific way. That's exciting to me. I hope that's exciting to you. And so stay with me because what that means is that no matter how chaotic or tragic you think your life has been, there is some rhyme, think poem, rhyme and reason to it and something beautiful that God wants to put on display and do through it. I want to say that again. No matter how chaotic and tragic. Can you live in this broken world a very chaotic and tragic life? Often, often, but it cannot trump what God intends to do. No matter how chaotic or tragic you think your life has been, there is rhyme and reason to it and something beautiful God wants to put on display and do through it. You, he wants to put you on display a work of art and do something through it. So you're a work of art, not just a nightmare, not a tragedy. So think about this. Not only are you saved and sent out. Okay, that's clear. He saves us and he sends us out. It's better than that. You are saved and sent out on a very specific, tailor-made, customized mission with good works that he intends to do through you. You don't need to wake up thinking, well, I'm not Brad Bigney. I'm not Peter LaRuffa. I'm not, I'm not an elder. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. See, the mentality sometimes is there's this ginormous pool of ordinary Christians and God just says, oh, get in that line. Just do whatever. Just do gospel kind of stuff. But I've got other very specific, gifted, customized, tailor-made ideas for these people that are really going to do something amazing. The Bible doesn't teach that. Every single believer is a poema, a work of art. And he had something in mind beforehand. Good works for you to do. Good works for you to do. In other words, there are, think of it this way. There are specific things, specific people, and specific places where God wants to use you. Not Brad Bigney, not Billy Graham, not, not John Piper, you, you. Because he believes you would be the most effective for his glory. A place where your story and the song of your life, even if it's in a minor key and has some really dark places to it, where your story and the song of your life would actually be the most attractive and the most effective to somebody in that place at that time. Does that excite you? That, that excites me for you. It's like, we could just say amen and I hope you just run out of here. 
thinking, I can't wait to get out there now. I, I'm waking up thinking differently now. God, what, what, who do you have out there for me? How do you want to use me? What are you doing? That you'd get more excited about thinking, I want to walk in the Spirit. I want to be filled with the Spirit. He has plans for me. I want to listen to Him. I want to get in on what He's doing. I am a customized, tailor-made, one-of-a-kind, unique work of art. The reason He hasn't taken me home to heaven is He wants to put me on display in some way, in some place, with someone in this dark world for His glory. Wow! That's a little more exciting than extending the den or getting a new car that smells so good. Oh, my word. This is exciting. God wants to showcase you as a work of art that might catch the attention of somebody else for his glory. In other words, your race, your gender... Your age, your family growing up, no matter how broken or dysfunctional it might have been. Your gift mix, your fears and failures, as well as your limitations, hurts, and heartaches have all shaped you. These things are not all fun, you guys. Everything that's happened to me has not been fun. I didn't just go to seminary. I did, but I tell you what has shaped me most. Some of the stuff that's happened in my life. Not books, not seminaries, so just like you. All limitations, hurts, heartaches have shaped you. Listen to me. So that there are some hands out there that would be best held by yours. There are some ears out there that would listen most to you, not me. There are some needs out there that could be best met by you, You are tailor-made, customized for that need. There's some brokenness that would be best stepped into by you. And I'm grateful that our church family gets a hold of quite a bit of this already because I've been teaching it for, oh, just 25 years. Where I would say, don't call me when you met somebody at the mall. Oh, I met this lady at the mall. She's so open to the gospel. I told her to call you. Please don't do that. She didn't meet me at the mall. And people don't want to talk to pastors. News alert. You have an advantage over me. You're normal. People run from me. I try to delay revealing that I'm a pastor as long as possible when I'm on a plane. I just hope they won't say, and what do you do? (laughs) It's a showstopper. It's not helpful. You have an advantage. You're normal. There are some people. So don't think, well, I don't know what to say like Brad would know what to say. Maybe not. But you got the same Holy Spirit. And God had in mind good works for you that he prepared beforehand. He's not going to send you in without giving you what you need. And in our weakness is when we do the best. You think, I'm scared. Perfect. I feel weak. Good. I think I'm inadequate. Yes. Now go. (laughs) That's who he likes to use. Oh, oh. If you've been called into the family of God then you've been sent back into this dark world. And not just in a general way, on a specific, customized, tailor-made, one-of-a-kind mission. Start waking up and saying, God, what is it you have for me? Give me eyes to see the people you want me to see. Help me not. Granted, you cannot meet every need. I have to live knowing that. Oh, my goodness. 
but it doesn't mean you meet none. You say, God, do you want me to lean into that? God, I see that. Do you want us to do something about that? Do you want me to use my resources? Do you want me to take that person out to lunch? Do you want me to send an email? Do you want me? Every, what if every one of us started waking up with this mindset? Where do you want to use me? But I want you to notice something else Jesus does here in this passage. Number two, Jesus confirms, yes, the power, the power we have, but redirects the source of our greatest joy. Look at what I'm talking about in verse 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. What is going on right here? What Jesus is giving every believer, not just the 12, every believer authority in his name over Satan and powers of darkness. That's what he means when he talks about treading on serpents. Jesus, Satan in Genesis 3 came in the form of a serpent. And Genesis 3.15 said that he was going to bruise Jesus' heel, but Jesus would crush him. Christians make a mistake here when they think, oh my goodness, it's taught about let's bring snakes into the service and handle them and see if we can keep from getting bitten and die. Good way to die. Good way to die early. He never meant for us to try to handle snakes and scorpions. That's not the biggest problem in this world. Physical snakes and scorpions is not the biggest problem. Spiritual forces of darkness is the biggest problem. And so he is saying, I've given you, ordinary Christians, authority in my name and power over spiritual forces of darkness. But ooh, As exciting as that is, I want you to notice what he quickly does here. Because it's a radical redirection of joy back into the right place. Because human beings have this tendency, right? We get excited about power. Oh my goodness. Wow, in Jesus' name. Damn it, claim it. I'm going to cast some things out like tomorrow. We get excited about power. We get excited about ministry success. We get excited about us doing something amazing. And so Jesus redirects joy back into the right place. When they come back celebrating, right? Look at it again. The 72 returned with joy. You can just hear them. They're probably all talking on top of each other. Lord, we never thought it was possible. Lord, Lord, we have authority. Us. Over demons and spirits in your name. This is so cool. When they come back celebrating that they have power over the forces of darkness. He does not jump in with that party. He shuts it down. He shuts it down. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. He confirms it. He says, of course I've given you power and authority in my name. I wouldn't send you out without that. But he shuts down the party And he says, your greatest joy is in the wrong place. Look at it beginning in verse 17. Then the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, he doesn't deny the power. I have given you authority to tread on serpents, scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, verse 20 is a key word. Nevertheless. Nevertheless doesn't mean what we just said was not true. It means, oh, yes, this, but, 
But it's like you're going this way, go this way. You're, you're thinking this too much, think this. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He says, of course, of course. When he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, he's saying, of course, my spirit and the power of the gospel will give you power and authority over spiritual forces of darkness. But that's not what you should be most excited about. And what I love about this passage is it is one of the few, starting in verse 17, it is one of the few passages we have where you can listen into Jesus as he debriefs his disciples who've already gone out. It's one thing to hear him talk to them before they ever go. That's great. But if you're a teacher, if you're a coach, if you're a mentor, if you're a parent, then you know some people just aren't even listening and some things you say to them won't even mean anything until they've tried to do some of this. I saw a huge difference between Bible college and seminary. I'm sitting in Bible college, great stuff going on. I think I missed half of it. Once I was married with two kids in a trailer doing ministry at a church and then went to seminary, I was listening. And I was asking great questions. What about, what about, you could see the difference between married, already in ministry people and single playing tennis and racquetball, goofing around the dorms and going to class. Sorry, there's a difference. When you're out there and you're trying to do it, you start asking better questions and you're leaning in and listening. This is the kind of meeting that you get to be a part of here. He's debriefing his disciples after they've gone out and started to do ministry, which would be a lot like us. We're in it. We're in it. We're in it right now in this world. And so I want to know, this is one of those meetings I want to listen in on. What would he adjust? What would he correct? Where does he think they're off in a way that's going to keep them from being most effective? Because I want to be most effective. Well, it has to do with motive and heart. That's what he's correcting, you guys. It has to do with motive and heart. Because you can do the right things. And that's part of the problem. Make sure you're doing the right things. But there's so much more than that. You can do the right things, but if you do it with a wrong heart... It all starts to unravel. You can do the right things, but if you do it with a wrong heart, it all starts to unravel. Because in the kingdom of God, it's not just what you do, but why you do it, stay with me, and how you think about others around you as you do it. Why are you doing what you do? Where's your heart? And that heart, what's it causing you to think about those around you as you do it? When they come back rejoicing that demons are subject to them, he says, of course I saw Satan fall from heaven. Of course my spirit and gospel would give you that kind of power. But that's not what you should be most excited about. Your greatest joy should always be in what God has done for you, not anything he chooses to do through you. So yes, wake up thinking I'm a work of art, customized. Where do you want me? But don't start getting all caught up in you. This is so cool. Oh, I am quite amazing. Very few people say that out loud, but it starts to rumble around in our hearts. 
This is so, as soon as you get a taste of, you start counseling and you see a breakthrough. Oh my goodness, God broke through as I was counseling. I'm just that good. Bring me another one. Right? Scary. It's like, that's the human heart. Oh, he says, don't ever begin to get caught up and most excited about and rejoicing in anything that I choose to do through you. Keep the main thing. You are still so amazed as what I did for you. That your names are written in heaven. You just don't get over that. Oh, he saved me. He saved me. I don't know why. He saved me by grace. He saved me. He saved me. He saved me. Why? If you're sitting there thinking, okay, whatever. What's the big deal? Really big deal. Because, get this. When you are still freshly amazed at what he's done for you, that he saved you, adopted you, robe of righteousness, loves you, inheritance for you, coming back for you, and you never get over it, it changes how you see other people around you and you don't talk down to them. It's not, I'm coming to you from the high ground and I'm here to help you because you are a mess. It it keeps you from ever saying, I can't believe that she would. If that's happening to you, you've lost sight of, oh, I am a sinner. A big fat one. That's been saved by not just grace. What kind of grace? Amazing is the word I want. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Listen, when you begin to get more caught up in what he's doing through you. Amazing falls off the front of grace. It's just not that amazing anymore. Amazing gets put in the wrong place. I am kind of amazing. And God did good to get me on his team. Oh, dear me. Again, I I tell you, these aren't things people say out loud. But does it happen internally? And when it begins to happen internally, listen to me, it affects the ministry you do externally. People might not be able to put their finger on it, but they're like, something's off. I don't enjoy being ministered to by him. There's something, something's off with her. This is often it. You are no longer rejoicing most in what he's done for you. Don't ever begin to rejoice more in what he's done through you. Now, I do get excited. Don't hear me saying there's no place to get excited. When, when God does something great in counseling or when I speak at a conference and I get good feedback or I sense that lives have been changed, when I get an email thanking me for anything, I am so encouraged. But this is what I do. And I learned this from Corey Tenboom. She said whenever people gave her a compliment, she saw it as a bouquet of flowers and she just gave it back to him. I'll go in my office and I'll just say, or I finish reading the email, I'll say, oh God, thank you, thank you. It is my great joy to serve a great God and to be a part of anything you're doing. But this bouquet of flowers I just received from this email belongs to you. Here you go. Here you go. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, don't hear what I'm not saying. It is a great joy to be used and begin to have opportunities to think, oh my goodness, he used me. He used me. But just be careful. Don't get stuck there. My greatest joy is what he's done for me. You say, how can I keep that alive? Let me say something that I'm going to say till I drop dead. If you'll keep reading your Bible. Oh, my word. All of it. 
You guys, I don't know what else that I'm doing that has helped me keep this alive apart from this anything greater than reading the Bible. When I read all of it every year, I just get struck all over again how lost I was, how glorious the gospel is, how wonderful he is, how deep and entrenched sin is, how amazing grace is. And I just stay, oh my goodness, he saved me, he saved me, he saved me. That's how the apostle Paul was in Timothy. Every time he started to write and talk about the gospel, he would have a worship moment. He'd have to throw his little quill pin down and throw his hands up and say, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God only wise, be glory and honor forever, amen. Now, what was I saying? Because he still was moved by the fact that God saved him. I want to stay that way. Best way to stay that way is keep reading your Bible. Because, oh, it's not just that he's called us in to send us out. It's not just that he's called us in to send us out on a very customized, specific, one-of-a-kind ministry. It's that he's called us in and sent us out to have hearts that do not get over talking about him and his amazing grace. 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 When you stop rejoicing in what he's done for you and you start getting caught up in what you think you're doing for him, some really bad things start to happen. Really bad things. But when you still wake up amazed at the grace of God that saved you, here's what happens. Here's why this matters. When you keep waking up amazed at the grace of God that saved you, two things will happen. It'll give you courage you don't care what people think. You'll have courage. Stay with me. And it'll give you gentleness and humility. I don't have to take it personally when we, they reject me. I don't have to take it personally because my identity, how good I feel about myself, is not tied to what I'm doing. I'm so caught up in who I am with him and what he's done for me. That's all right. It's not fun. But you don't have to unravel. You don't have to fall apart. And you don't have to revile back. It'll give you courage and it'll give you humility and gentleness as you do this customized ministry. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Because First Peter, in First Peter 3, Peter talks about this. Look at me. Peter gives us the tone and the heart that we're supposed to have on this mission. God does not just call us in and send us out and say, do this any way you want. If you happen to be a blunt, harsh person, do it that way. The tone and the heart matter. Go to 1 Peter 3. Let's look at the tone and the heart of this mission. Tone and heart, 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 14. 1 Peter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake. You're kidding. You mean we might be doing the right thing on mission, living for him and his kingdom and we'll suffer? See, human mindset is if I'm doing what God calls me to do, he protects me. I don't suffer. That's a different book than this book. You can find it on the best-selling Christian book list. It's just not biblical. You will suffer for doing righteousness. But even if you suffer for righteousness sake, oh, look at this. You will be blessed. You're blessed. So don't be guilty of saying, God, I don't understand. I'm trying to live out this customized, one-of-a-kind ministry. Why are these things happening to me? You're blessed. He says back, you're blessed. 
You're blessed. In fact, some of you, I would say to you, when's the last time you suffered at all for any kind of righteousness? I'm not talking about some other cause that I won't name right now. I'm talking about you've suffered for righteousness. You've tried to live for him. You're trying to point people to Christ. You're trying to raise the flag of Jesus up the flagpole, and it cost you. You suffered. You're blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. We got Christians running scared. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But here's what, here's what has to be going on. Something has to be going on in your heart. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense. Oh, we've got Christians making a defense, giving an argument, going on the warpath about all kinds of things. Just not what he's talking about here. Be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Not tell me about your view on this because you seem really mad. I'd love to know more. Not, oh, tell me what you have because you're freaking out. Other people are already freaking out. No one's going to ask you, give me that. Oh, you look so angry. Can I learn more about that? What's behind that? I want to get angry. Everybody's angry. Everybody's freaking out. Everybody's afraid. There's no more need for that. Is anybody looking at you in the midst of this chaos right now and saying, what do you have that I don't have? Now, don't hear me saying you can't have an opinion on those things. I do. I do. What's not what I'm living for. Is anybody asking you, what do you have that I don't have? Because they sense that you have hope. You're not losing it. You still have hope. There's a gentleness and a kindness and a peacefulness about you. And they're like, what? What is that? And you get to talk about what matters most. Jesus. You get to say, well, I am concerned about what's going on. And I have an opinion. But I'm a part of a bigger kingdom. Oh, I'm not staying here forever. This is not home. This is not home. I don't have to get it all right. I'm not home. I'm not home. I'm an exile. I'm a foreigner. I'm a pilgrim. I'm a stranger. But oh my goodness, right now he's with me. He's with me. Be ready to give a defense to anyone ask you for the reason of the hope that you have. Watch this. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. There is no place at any time with any person for a Christian to be disrespectful and harsh. Try to send me a verse that says otherwise. Well, please don't, because you're wrong. All right? I am tired of hearing Christians give the example of Jesus in the temple driving them out. He was not driving them out over a political issue. The Romans were in power, and he he said, this is not what I'm all about. He was about the glory of his father, and the place of worship had been turned in a place of merchandise. That's what got him up and in arms, the glory of God. Go ahead and get up in arms about the glory of God, but not earthly, temporal, time-bound issues. You are not to create your little whip and say, look how much like Jesus I am. Gentleness. Respect. Respect. Feel free to differ, but differ with you. You say, but oh, online now, it's a new day. The gloves are off. I know. That will only make us stand out even more. 
They come at you and they make it personal. And you don't. They really are ugly, but you're not. Guys, gentleness. With gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that, oh, look at this. Not if. What if I'm slandered? He doesn't say if you're slandered. When. To be slandered means to misrepresent someone. Is that happening? Oh, dear me, yes. When you are slandered. Those who revile. Are we being reviled? That's a strong word. But we're supposed to be like Jesus. It says in Peter, the same book, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. We're supposed to be like him, not the social media culture. When you are reviled, your good behavior in Christ They may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good. You mean you could suffer for doing good? Mm Mm-hmm. Than for doing evil. Suffer for doing good. We're in that day. We're living in that season. We get to be the people of God for such a time as this. But we need to be listening to our Savior and getting our marching orders from our Savior. And not just getting the mission from Him, but the heart and the tone from Him. I want you to see finally, one more thing from this passage. Number three, Jesus celebrates. So here's what I think is interesting. They come back celebrating. And he shuts their party down and says, not this, but that. And then he himself says, let me show you what to celebrate. And he goes into a praise and prayer service right there in front of them. Look at verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced. Now, he's still doing this debriefing service. And so a lot like the Apostle Paul, as he begins to talk to them about what matters most, that your names are written in heaven, he gets so excited about that thought. Because guess what, you guys? Salvation still excites him. That excites him that men and women from every nation are being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone, plus nothing. He is so excited about this when he says, oh, that your names are written in heaven, then he just goes into a praise and prayer service himself in front of them. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. For such is your gracious Will. What's he doing? He's clarifying how radical this salvation is because it's so not like the rest of this world. It's based on achievement and merit and what you do and how smart you are that puts you in a different category and therefore you're rewarded with something better. Salvation is unlike anything else in this world. It doesn't work that way. And this rejoicing of his, it's not even the same word as they're rejoicing. They came back rejoicing. Luke uses the word for rejoice right there that was the most intense word for joy they had in all the Greek language. Most intense. It was a word for exuberant ecstasy, over-the-top joy that begins to bubble up and erupt 
because you cannot keep it in. Jesus is erupting and praising his father in front of them for the amazing grace of salvation and what's being offered. That it's being offered to people. Oh, listen, this good news goes out to people who know they're weak, to people who are not the smartest, to people who don't have it the most together, to people who know they're not good. That is not like the world. And yet people who are willing to humble themselves like little children and say, God, I bring nothing. But I simply choose to put my faith in Jesus Christ. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That excited Jesus. That excited Jesus, and it still does. The very thought of how this plan of salvation was being offered in such a radical way launched Jesus into a prayer and praise service in front of them. Because here's what Jesus is saying, and and it's pretty sobering, you guys. He's saying those who focus on how much they think they know and continue to demand... They just continue to demand that their human reasoning be fully satisfied before they'll ever trust or believe will have these things hidden from them. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't hear me saying Christianity is just a leap in the dark. It's based on nothing. Not true at all. Not true at all. Christianity is not devoid of credible substance. There's plenty of credible substance. And it's not devoid of thinking. But get this. You will never think yourself and reason yourself into the kingdom of God. Please consider the evidence. Please think. Please read. Please ask questions. But at the end of the day, there will come a point, my friend... Where you have to stop and say, I believe. Based on the credible evidence, based on everything I've investigated, I believe. I put my faith in the credible evidence. It's enough. It's enough. It's enough. What Christ has done for me. So as I close, I want to address two groups. Christians. Oh my goodness, you're on mission, a specific customized mission with a heart that you're still rejoicing most in what he's done for you. And so you don't talk down to people. You you don't disrespect. You're not harsh. You can be gentle and humble and loving and you don't have to take it personally. So I'd say Christians, don't take it personally when they reject you or the message because this passage helps us tremendously. Look at verse 16 again. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me and the Father who sent me. Stop taking everything so personally. But unbeliever, listen to me. I'd say, Christian, don't take it personally when you get rejected. And I'd say, unbeliever, don't take the message of the gospel lightly. Oh, don't take it lightly. Don't take it lightly. You may be listening online or in person at any of our campuses. And here's what I want you to consider. You've been thinking about this for a long time now. You've been asking questions. You've been listening for a long time. 
Today is a day of salvation. But oh my goodness, in verse 12, there's a sobering verse. Jesus talks about that day. He's talking about that day of judgment. That day of judgment where you will be held accountable for everything you've heard and been exposed to. There's going to be a day of judgment. This free offer of the gospel is going to come to an end. He's going to return and you will be judged. Come to faith in Christ. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to bow your heads together with me as we close. And I want right now, because we're in chapter 10 now. We've seen a lot about Jesus and some of you have been with us the entire journey. If you're not a believer, would you be willing today to put your faith in Jesus? You say, I still don't have all my answers. My question's answered. Maybe not. Neither do I. But you know enough. You know enough. And the Spirit of God has been convicting and drawing and prodding. He's given you eyes to see Jesus in a whole new way and yourself. Would you today receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. If you want to do that, pray that this simple prayer after me. Dear God, I recognize that I am a sinner who was born separated from you. And my sin would have kept me from heaven and would have determined my eternal final resting place in hell, separated from you, because you're holy, holy, holy. But you sent your Son to die in my place for my sins, I believe in who he is and what he's done. I put my childlike faith in him. Please save me. Oh God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your calling that when you save us, you don't just take us home and you don't just set us on a shelf. And just use a few gifted people. Thank you that you've called us into your family and sent us back into this world for specific good works that you have created for us to put on display. Use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.